Good morning, everybody. I think the first scripture that I want us to turn to today is found in the second chapter of John's Gospel. There are three passages I want to look at today on this Palm Sunday. Throughout the Bible, there is maybe not well known, but there is a significance attached to the palm tree. First, we we see the significance of the palm tree in the the feast. It was called of Tabernacles. And it was one of the feasts that was required attendance. And you had the Passover, you had Pentecost, um, and you had the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was a a seven-day worship and feast, and it commemorated the years in the wilderness after the Israelites were delivered from Egypt and lived in tents or even, you know, little brush shelters for 40 years. And God ordered them to remember that as a perpetual commemoration that God, how God took care of them. He delivered them from Egypt. He gave them, he saved them. He was their savior. He was their deliverer. They were completely in over their heads. No way to escape. Hard taskmaster was Pharaoh. And they were in a humanly, utterly hopeless situation. God delivered them. Spread, split the Red Sea and they walked across on dry ground. The Passover was also a commemoration of when the Lord struck dead all the firstborn in Egypt, but spared the Israelites. And so that was a required feast. But the Feast of Tabernacles, especially through the centuries in Judea, when they finally got into the promised land and had the capital of Jerusalem and were established, it became a specific significance to use palm fronds to build these little outdoor booths that they would spend a week in in remembrance that God took care of them in the wilderness, fed them manna every morning, gave them all that they needed, sent water out of the rock, and miraculously, for all those years, took care of them. They were required not to forget that. All the feasts that they had were in remembrance that God was their Savior, and God was faithful, and He never failed them, and He took care of them. So there was a significance to Israel attached to palm branches. Beyond that, 
culturally, palm branches were symbols of triumph, victory. They would greet returning military heroes returning from a victory with the waving of palm branches. They were a symbol of joy and victory and triumph. They were also used in the same way for uh, later years. The winners of great athletic contests. And they would, sometimes even the victors themselves would carry a small palm branch with them. So it gained a significance that God instituted. And then we find, I think we could say, the pinnacle of this idea of welcoming a conquering hero, a king. It reaches, in one sense, its pinnacle on Palm Sunday when Jesus made his triumphal, there's that word, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All of the gospel writers, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have record of Palm, what we have come to call Palm Sunday. The Sunday, first day of the week, prior to the crucifixion on Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday. All four of the gospel writers have an account of what we today call Palm Sunday. Something, though, that has been interesting to me, and I hope I can accurately explain the why behind it, we look at the core of Palm Sunday was Jesus being welcomed by the crowds and we sang a song this morning with the word in it, Hosanna. And Hosanna is Lord save us or you are our Savior. We then find that episode followed by the cleansing of the temple where Jesus rode in triumph at least in their minds into Jerusalem they called him king of Israel the Messiah they called him the son of David that means the Messiah God's chosen one that man that we have been ordered to look forward to for centuries and centuries is here. He's really here. And so they cry out, save us. I think we mostly know that they were somewhat misled in their own minds because they believed that Jesus would rid them of the physical oppressors that they had in the persons of the Romans. And so they were anxious for Jesus as he rode in on this first day of the week, Sunday, that we now call Palm Sunday. They thought we are days, maybe hours away 
from regaining our sovereignty as a nation and God's raising us up as he promised for so long. They had no idea that it was not a physical oppressor that Jesus came to defeat. When they cried out, Lord, save us, it was from a physical oppressor. They had very little sense of a spiritual oppressor. So that when Jesus rode in on Sunday and essentially didn't do anything in their minds, he went to the temple and taught, and he went on that day to the temple and cleaned it out, which we'll look at in a second, and they kind of, okay, but when's the main event? Well, the main event, unknown to them, and stunning to them was a cross. What? What? We can't recognize the shock, the disappointment, the puzzlement, the bewilderment that came to them. We thought, and that's what the two disciples said on Easter Sunday as they walked along the road to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and Jesus unrecognizable to them, joined them and they walked and they said, we thought he was the one. But the Jew, the, our leaders killed him. It's over with. I don't think we can grasp how much they were devastated. Hope was absolutely gone. But only because they focused on a physical oppressor, not the spiritual oppressor of the whole world, had no idea then what Jesus had just accomplished. I think there's something, though, significant to me, and I hope I'm correct here. Only John, and this morning we'll be reading only words written by John, Two passages in the Gospel of John and one in the book of Revelation that John wrote. Only John reports a second cleansing of the temple. Actually, a first, followed by the Palm Sunday cleansing. There has to be, God doesn't do things that are just merely coincidence or afterthoughts. What is the deal here? If we read John carefully, there Jesus, within six months of the beginning of his ministry, entered the temple and threw out the money changers and the people that were selling sacrificial animals all for a big cut, cleansed them, threw them out. First Passover that Jesus after he began his ministry. Then you have another Passover, so that's a year and a half into Jesus' ministry. Then you have another Passover, two and a half years into his ministry. Then you have what would really be the fourth Passover, which was the crucifixion. So Jesus' ministry was about three and a half years in length. But he cleansed the temple on the first Passover and on the fourth Passover. 
So the cleansing we think, he went into the temple once and he cleansed it. There were two. One at the very beginning of his ministry, one at the very end. What's the significance of that? I could say, I don't know. <laughs> but I do think, I do think there's something here. I think one of the ways to look at it is in terms, remember this, when Jesus went to the temple to cleanse it, he spoke volumes. Where he spoke volumes, one, in where he didn't go. He did not go to any system of government. He didn't go to the financial district in Jerusalem. He paid no attention then to the economic issues. He didn't go visit the military. And he didn't sit down with Pilate and protest about what was going on governmentally. He didn't go to the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, which was the group that partially governed the Jews, just in a religious sense. Government had been taken away from them. The Romans administered that. What, where did he go? He speaks volumes in, he went to the heart, the sanctuary of Israel, the temple. And you know, the same exact word is used, sanctuary, is used for when Jesus refers, which we'll read here in a second, when Jesus refers to his own body and to our bodies, it's the same word, sanctuary. Do you realize our bodies, and specifically, not our physical heart, but the, the wheelhouse of us as persons, is called a sanctuary. Now, that means a holy place. It means a place where God dwells. And it's off limits to the unholy. Yet he welcomes those who he has redeemed and made like himself. So Jesus went to the heart of Israel because that was his problem. Why were they under oppression? Because they had centuries earlier didn't need God. We don't need God anymore. We're doing that as a nation. If you are like I am, totally addicted, somehow can't control myself, and keep watching the news, just this last week, and it's been revisited even over the weekend in the news, with shocking polling of a precipitous, over-the-cliff-edge decline in what are called traditional values in America and what, what people think of them. How important do they think they are? And the only, the two top ones were religious and moral values and then patriotic values. And both of them are in 
free fall. We don't need God. Now, I don't know what in the world it would take us to convince us that we, we do. But that was the same situation with Israel. Even though, and, and here's how blind they were. Jesus, speaking to the chief priests, the Pharisees, they were surrounding him, picking at him, trying to trick him. And which, <laughs> what, what a fool's errand that is. We're going to tie Jesus up in knots. Anyway, <clears throat> he said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And you know what they responded? They said, we're sons and daughters of Abraham, and we've never been in subjection or slavery to anybody. <laughs> Why, all they had to probably arm's length nearly. There'd be a Roman soldier who was patrolling the streets. Are they nuts? Yes. Sin is spiritual insanity. Total disconnection from reality. And so here they were with Roman soldiers all around them in all the streets, running everything, taxing them to death. We've never been in slavery to anybody. That's the blindness that comes when we don't want God. So all of Israel's problems were not physical, not the Romans. Not, it was spiritual. They were in spiritual darkness. And that's the explanation for all of this. Jesus spoke to that when he went, bypassed everything else, went to the temple. That was the problem. The heart. That's the problem. It's not poverty. It's not lack of education. It's not lack of legislation. That's not our problem. It's in here. Jesus identified that. So we'll look first at this early cleansing. After the miracle of the marriage at Cana in John 2. And they, it says this was the first miracle he did. So it's right at the front end of his ministry. In verse 13. <clears throat> the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business or a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, that's the word sanctuary again, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, still in John, 
chapter 12. I want to read this and then draw a comparison if we can. John chapter 12. Jesus had just in the days prior to Palm Sunday and two weeks or so before Easter had raised Lazarus from the dead. Lived in the city of Bethany. was just a couple miles from Jerusalem. Well, what you had was a massive group of people from all over the Mediterranean basin and the Roman Empire traveling for the Passover. And they didn't just get there the day before. I mean, people began to gather for days and weeks prior. And so Jerusalem is packed with travelers, with visitors that have come for this great feast that is a week and a half or so away. And then Jesus heals a man who'd been dead four days. Well, that went everywhere. And what a setting. It's not just kind of a dusty little town that's half empty. and It's jammed with people. Goes like wildfire. This guy was raised from the dead. So a lot of people began going on a pilgrimage to Bethany to see Lazarus. So many that did that and then began to question, maybe this is the Messiah, and believed to a certain level in him. Lazarus became such a star that people were traveling to go try to see him that the Pharisees got together, and in addition to planning all along, we've got to get rid of Jesus. They felt, well, in the meantime, we got to get we gotta, we need to kill Lazarus. There's too many people going. He's still alive, and he's he's the uh, you know he's who they're going to the circus to see. Let's kill him too. On the heels, then, or why that's still going on, you have in the twelfth chapter, verse twelve. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, that's the Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign, raising Lazarus. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. This account of John's does not move to the second cleansing. He doesn't report it. It turns to Greeks who were Gentiles who were seeking, which is a foretaste of what he planned to do in saving the Gentiles. 
What are the differences that may help us understand why there were two cleansings of the temple? The first one, Jesus is virtually unknown. He's only been in his ministry six months. He turned the water into wine at Cana, and he did a few other things, but he was not, not, not widely known at all. And when he went up to Jerusalem for that first Passover, there's no sense that anybody knew he was coming. There was nothing like the triumphal entry. There was no palm leaves. There were no thousands and thousands of people. There was no riding on a donkey fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy in the Old Testament. It seemed to be half undercover. There's no outward evidence and crowd sense that something's going on here. There's a second thing that I think is a little bit different. We don't, we, we don't have any sense at all that um, the second cleansing was nicer than the first one. But the first one does include a little detail that none of the others speaking of the second cleansing mention. And that is the premeditated um, weaving or making of a probably a little rawhide whip to drive in John 2. And the, the language here will indicate that the use of the whip that he wove, that he made, thinking about it, was used both on the cattle and the sheep and the people. He drove them, it says, and the sheep and the oxen. So the whip was received not only by cows and sheep, but the money changers, the people that were fraudulently gouging the worshipers who came from too far away to bring a lamb with them. And so you had to buy one. And the high priests were the only sellers. The ministry was taking advantage of the sheep. It was, I have to be careful, but it was the Dan Morgan ministry. You understand? And you guys have failed so far. I've only got I think it's either $15 or $20 in the fund for my uh, jet to expand the ministry. So you need to get going here. That's what the chief priests were doing. It was a racket. And they, they, it's like the Old Testament. All the Old Testament prophets said, you priests are living off the sheep and you skin their hide, and you're fat and flourishing. And he said, God's going to judge you for it. Well, they hadn't quit. That was the same thing going on here. So Jesus cleanses the temple. Then, three years to the day later, he cleanses it again. What? Why? If he cleansed it the first time, 
Why does it need a cleansing the second time? It is an indication, I believe, of the difference between being converted and being sanctified. When we're converted, sometimes, or maybe more than sometimes, I think very frequently, when a person finds God in repentance and the load of conviction finally breaks me down and I bow the knee and pray and ask for forgiveness, it's somewhat sudden. I don't mean that, it, that God sneaks up on your blind side and saves you. We know what we're doing. But we don't know very much about Jesus often. We just know we're focused. We just know we've got a heavy load in our heart and shame and remorse and regret is eating us alive. And we call out to God and most of the time, knowing very little, we receive peace in our hearts and we know that. And then, then is when we are supposed to begin to get better acquainted with Jesus. Notice that in that first cleansing. It's rather sudden. It's unannounced. Nobody knew he was coming. There was no palm fronds, no shouting Hosanna. There was none of that. He just showed up on his own. And before they knew what was going on, dust was in the air, birds flying everywhere, cattle mooing, sheep bleating, and things were wild. When he got done, the place was emptied. He got rid of that which was profaning the sanctuary. Now here's the problem. If we don't move on after conversion, if we don't move on to a deeper work that God wants to do in a deeper kind of cleansing of our hearts, many of the old habits, many not all will be reestablished. We'll find ourselves kind of cooling off, kind of gradually sliding back so slowly and imperceptibly that we not, hardly even recognize it. But if we do stop and look back, the fervor, the fire, the joy, the peace, the urgency to tell people what happened to me after I was converted has kind of ebbed. And there is, in, there is in Scripture something called initial sanctification when, as James said, our hands are cleansed. But then there's what Paul called entire sanctification where, as James put it, purify your hearts, you double-minded. We need two cleansings, one of our hands, the other of the deepest part of our heart. I think that's why there were two cleansings of the temple. And that's the reason. And notice the second one, too. The second one is altogether different. He is welcomed as who he was. You are the king. You're the son of David. You're the Messiah. This was not a, I kind of don't know who this is. 
I know a little about Jesus. I don't really know maybe all that's involved in giving my heart to him. And there's where a lot of times Jesus upsets things. He comes in, he comes in when we get converted. And we're happy. Boy, we invite Jesus into our heart and we've got peace and joy and man, things are great. And then, you know, there's some in our house, there's some little spot. It's our man cave where we love it. That's the way we want it. And Jesus says, these walls got to come out. We're taking this out. What? Yeah. We, we don't know that about him. But when he moves in, he takes control that we sort of maybe didn't plan on. That produces the re resistance of the old self-centered nature. Well, wait a minute. I, I like that. I like that room like it is. I don't want that wall to come out. If he came in to live there, he has a right. I have a good friend, grew up with, went to college and seminary with, pastored along with for a long time, ended up being a um, church history professor for 30 years. He was sent to a little student pastorate like I was when we were in seminary in Portland. <clears throat> he goes to this little, they had a bunch of little struggling churches, and basically they called them student pastors. Couldn't support a preacher. They needed help. They, they were, it was this kind of a strata there that you'd feed these young preachers to. And they were the good-hearted souls that put up with some, you know, wet-behind-the-ears preacher. And sit there and listen to, I don't think I have a single sermon from the first, I don't know how many years. I've thrown them away. I look at them, I'm like, I can't believe this. Um, but at any rate, Mark moved into this parsonage at this church. And the former pastor had moved on. But he, I don't know what was wrong with him. But he left a whole bunch of furniture and a bunch of personal stuff. We used to joke, you know, he locked his sermons up so nobody would get them and publish them. But that was a joke, inside joke, because we knew how he preached. But anyway. And then he goes and puts a great big old, bores a hole and puts a big Yale lock on this bedroom door where he'd piled all of his stuff. And he, of course, kept the key. So when Mark moves in, he doesn't have access to that whole house. Yeah, he could, you know, he had mostly, but there was one room locked, sealed. He did not have access to it. That's kind of like when we first get converted. We figure I've got some, my own space. Jesus, no, uh, if I'm going to stay here, this whole place is under my jurisdiction. I want to tear out a wall, we're doing it. I want to add on, we're doing it. This is mine. And we think, well, did I bargain for this or not? The reception on the second cleansing, they knew exactly who he was. Now, they still, in their ignorance, not necessarily sin didn't understand completely what Jesus was going to do, but they recognized, they called him the son of David. This is the one we looked for, for forever. We're receiving him now as a king, not as an unknown, 
we're unaware of what he's going to do, like the first cleansing. I think these two cleansings are a good illustration of the two acts of God that he wants to do in our hearts. Then, if we look finally, I think there's significance to this. If we look at the book of Revelation, the seventh chapter, this to me is also significant. Revelation 7, <clears throat> verse 9. This is after that mysterious passage about the sealing of 144,000 Jews, and it figuratively lists each of the 12 heads, each of the tribes, and the number 12,000 of each tribe. Then, verse 9, this represents the Gentiles, the non-Jews that Jesus also brought into the kingdom. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God. That's the word Hosanna. It's the same thing on Palm Sunday. In heaven there will be kind of a replay of Palm Sunday. The triumph, the victory, the joy, the peace. And it signified that in heaven, in white robes, holding palm branch. So the forecast and the foretelling of Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago foreshadowed the day when true victory, true victory will and true triumph will be experienced and attributed to Jesus himself. The rest of this passage, after they cry out salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders, it says, says to John, Who are these that are clothed in white and have the palm branches? He said, I don't know. You know. And then he says in verse 14, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb is in the center of the throne, will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Looking then 
at this palm tree and the significance of the triumph that it represents. We have to figuratively and in our own hearts have a Palm Sunday experience where we welcome Jesus into our hearts as the King. Not as someone who saves us from what's a nuisance to us and makes things all better, but we recognize He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's God. And He's the King. And I welcome Him understanding that. In order that, I may then experience in heaven shouting Hosanna with what's called the white robed throng. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that there are countless threads of truth in your word all pointing the same direction, the same thing, landing safe on heaven's shore. What a picture there of all the gratitude to God and that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. No trouble, no death, no disease, no devil, no temptation, no sin. That is our desired haven. Keep us on the road, we pray, toward that wonderful, indescribable place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will give me a moment to get to the back door, you will be dismissed after I get out of here. <clears throat>